All right, welcome to this second episode of the Bully Pew Podcast. I'm your host, David Morrill, for Protestia.com. It occurs to me as I'm starting to record this podcast that there's a good chance that people are going to, well, we assume people are going to get sick of hearing my voice or hearing what I have to say. Um, hopefully not. that's not the case. <laughs> I, I, I think that because that's what we tend to think when we're recording our own voice and recording our own program. And then I realized that people are watching um, Tucker Carlson or Sean Hannity or Rachel Maddow or whoever um, like every single night, and they don't seem to get sick of them. So I, I don't suppose that you would get sick of me um, anymore, unless, of course, what I'm saying is nonsensical or un- you know not informative or not at least slightly entertaining and we're not talking about things that we're all in- interested in. And so that's the point of this podcast is to talk about what it's like and in issues uh, regarding walking the Christian walk as a as a Christian man in the pews and I hope that uh, once this podcast sort of gets off the ground and there are regular listeners and subscribers and it winds up being listed on on different um, podcast services and, and things like this that there will be pastors who are also listening um, because the, the the truth is that 95% of what we're going to talk about, if not more, um, equally applies to pastors as well. There's not some big um, difference here, not some big dichotomy, despite what uh, some ministers would tell you and honestly what some uh, lay people seem to think. There's not some big difference in walking the Christian walk as a pastor versus um, a layman. You know, I don't even really like that term, layman. Because it, it really does imply that there is a, a distinction um, or some sort of a hierarchy. And, and you know that as, as a Baptist, I certainly um, am reflexively against anything that even hints of popery or, or you know, some sort of a religious hierarchy that grants certain people greater access to God or certain, you know, greater ability to somehow understand scripture or something like that. Um, that's not what we believe as Christians, as Protestants. Um, certainly in the, the Calvinist or the Reformed camp um, in which I find myself, that's something that, that we would um, very much oppose and we believe instead that in it in in the uh, the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers, that is that every believer um, has equal access to God, equal um, responsibility responsibility and ability to minister in the name of Jesus. And yes, that ministry um, is very different. It's it's different when you are a vocational pastor. Um, you have a certain ministry that other people do not have, um, and but every every Christian is called to be a minister, and so that's um, that's something that's uh, important to us. That's something we're going to emphasize, and on this this podcast specifically, we're going to emphasize that from the perspective, really from my perspective, as being um, now a. I guess middle-aged, if we want to say middle-aged, if you're 40, 41 years old, uh, you're middle-aged, a, middle, a, a middle-aged um, a Christian church member who has never been a pastor, um, does not have any formal theological education, except I am working my way through a master's degree um, in worship music, 
worship music studies. So there, there is certainly some um, formal theological education that is part of that and will continue to be part of that as I very slowly work through that degree program, take my sweet time because I'm not, at this point, I'm not utilizing or I don't need that degree for some job that I'm going after or some position at a church. It's uh, something that I... Um, believed I, that that I should do uh, just in case God calls me into a field like that. And so I'm, I'm working through it. So I guess technically I do have some formal theological education, but I don't have an, I don't have an MDiv uh, or some sort of doctorate or something like that. You're not going to see, any, even if I did, I will tell you this, even if I did, certainly, I mean, for crying out loud, certainly if it's a bachelor's degree, which of course I have, or a master's degree, or, or even a P, whatever it is, I'm, you're not going to see that in my social media bio. I really, I think that that's about the dumbest thing that I see is, is someone saying, um, here's my social media bio. And by the way, I have a, I've seen this before. I have a bachelor's degree in yada, 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 you know, BA, blah, 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 blah. As if somehow, um, I'm supposed to take your tweets more seriously because you have a bachelor's degree in something or really that I'm supposed to take your, your social media posts more seriously because you have a master's degree in something. Like, do, do, does that make, does, does that validate what you're saying? Because there are plenty of people out there with, with all sorts of advanced education that say the, the dumbest things, the most nonsensical things, the most evil things, um, all the time. And so, so in, in that context, understanding that credentials and education, um, seem to produce opinions across the spectrum all over the place. Credentialing seems like just a just sort of a silly shortcut lazy sort of an argument to make hey i have this credential therefore what i said is more valid no no it isn't because there's a dude over there with the same credential that says something totally different so why even be let's just talk about the issue let's see if you can actually make a a convincing argument or a convincing case um for the point that you're trying to make um so anyway yeah you're not going to see that from me i don't have at this point, any sort of formal theological credential that I can put behind this. And yet, uh, I find myself compelled out of obedience to the Lord to still need to live and walk the, live, uh, in obedience and walk the Christian walk. And so that's, that's, um, the perspective that this podcast is coming from. I appreciate you, uh, hanging out and listening to it. Hopefully it will be a, a blessing to you and, and hopefully, um, we'll be able to get somewhere with the issues that we're talking about. Now I hinted at this. If you listen to episode one, I hinted at this at the end of episode one, um, talk basically that the, the topic that we were talking about was going to need to bleed over into episode two. And that topic specifically relates, um, at this point, that topic specifically relates to uh, um, abuse in marriage, but a little different take on it. Um, if you see conversations around abuse in evangelical circles, and you, you see people doing videos and writing about these kinds of things, um, what you what you notice is that it's a couple things. It's we we pretty much only talk about women being abused. The idea that a man can be abused in a relationship or, or in a context is it's it's never talked about in marriage. It's sometimes it's talked about in ministry where they say, "Hey, this this man, this uh, church member, or whatever um, has," or especially if it's a young man or an adolescent man, well, he's been abused, but it's always he's been abused by a minister. He's been abused by a man. Um, rarely or almost not at all do we talk about this man over here has been abused by a woman. Or this this husband here has been abused by his wife. 
Uh, we almost act like um, that that's not a possible thing, that that can't really happen. And of course, we first have to start with trying to figure out, and this is a near impossible task at this point, trying to figure out the actual definition of abuse, because the word in and of itself doesn't necessarily mean a whole lot. It doesn't. It doesn't actually define the the sinful behavior, or uh, in some cases, the criminal behavior that it's being used to describe. And so, somebody we can use the term abuse to describe just, I mean, horrific, you know, assault and rape and and these kind of things. Um, we can use abuse to describe. Um, you know, manipulation and and lying and deceiving people uh, for selfish ends, um, and to 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 harm them in some way, um, in terms of bearing false witness or stealing from them or um, or whatnot. We can, but I mean, we can also use abuse, and this is frequently done. Unfortunately, use abuse to um, denote somebody who has more or less just simply disagreed with what you believe. And, and you felt bad because they've disagreed with what you believe or what position you hold, and therefore they've abused you. I mean, it, it can really be that, um, that nondescript or that basic. Um, and I think that that's a, that's a problem with this entire conversation is we, we refuse to actually draw biblical lines around the, these terms and things that we're throwing out. Uh, and and we like to use that sort of definitional drift in all sorts of parts of the conversation. So it's not just not just around the term of abuse, but there's a whole lot of other terms and framework that can be brought into the, these conversations that are ripe for um, definitional drift and people moving moving the definitions of things and with the with the idea of stirring people's emotions rather than actually getting to. Um, the nuts and bolts uh, facts about what did or didn't happen. We we see that happen a lot. You know, under the basic definition of the term abuse, if we just take the term abuse at at its most basic level, uh, we're all abusers in some way. We've all abused something. We've all misused something. We've all um, utilized something in a way that it wasn't intended to be utilized. Or we've all... Um, you know, we, we, we've all mis, mischaracterized something. We've all treated somebody in a way they shouldn't have been treated. We've all, um, certainly in terms of our relationship with God, he's given us a revelation and a law that we um, are accountable to follow, and we haven't done it. We've abused um, our familial relationship with God as, as believers, as believers who um, are indwelt by the Holy Spirit, and who should uh, be bearing fruit in keeping with repentance in our lives, we've all fallen short of that. So God has, God has seen in his mercy and his grace to save us, to, to give us the gift of salvation, to make us new, new creations. And we instead have decided um, that we were going to uh, not do that. We have still sinned, even in context of our regenerated nature. We've abused the grace that God has given us. We've abused the gift he's given us by throwing it back in his face and by continuing to sin. Right? I mean, we can, we can use this word abuse to basically describe um, any sinful behavior. And 
of, at that point where we've left the left it open for the culture to decide and the world to decide well this these sins are bigger deals than these other sins over here um i think i said something something yesterday about uh the difference between just in just as a terminological curiosity the difference between saying somebody sinned and somebody quote-unquote fell into sin like what it What's the difference there? Are we trying to say, I mean, I guess maybe we're trying to say if somebody fell into sin that this is some sort of a pervasive lifestyle, uh, reoccurring, unrepentant kind of a thing. Um, but of course, within the, the public conversation, um, we don't necessarily wait to, to, to find that out. You know, certainly if it's a pastor or a male in some sort of a leadership role, um, it becomes... it. The, the question never becomes, is this pervasive? The question becomes, can, can we tag him with this? Did he do, did he do one thing that we, um, that's on our list of sins that are worse than others? Can we tag him with it? And then now that defines who he is. And it doesn't matter if it's actually pervasive. It doesn't matter if there's a pattern. It doesn't matter if he repents and makes, makes amends and apologizes. He's, he's persona non grata. We're seeing this right now with, and I'm not going to talk about this because, frankly, I don't know enough about what's going on. I think those facts will come out. But we see this right now with um, Matt Chandler at the Village Church um, admitting to his congregation, you know, basically his pastors are putting, or the the other elders are putting, um, have decided he needs to take three months off from being a pastor of the church because of some sort of inappropriate, you know, direct messaging or texting with some other uh, woman of the church um, they didn't tell anybody at the church what the nature of that was like not really um, in fact they didn't even they didn't even characterize it as sin which makes it impossible to really for anybody to actually exercise Matthew 18 and in step two determine like what happened here does this actually qualify as sin in the way that we think it might um, or that it, that it could. What's what's the nature of this? You know, they they it they don't make it possible for us to figure that out when they don't tell us, and it's it's smacked of of, of PR control and narrative, and of course church leadership very easily falls into that trap because they convince themselves that that they and only they and their wisdom and their decisions and and what they choose to that the, the work of the Lord pivots on those things and they it's that's really difficult to get somebody out of that mindset uh, a minister out of that mindset because at the ground level they've seen decisions and things that they've done either have good or bad consequences um, and they they very easily assume that that God is working um, not just not through them not not that God is working through them but that God is working at their behest that God moves because they move rather than rather than the other way around that God will move with or without them um, and they their their task is to be obedient um, and so the, I mean that's it, that's just an example of what we're talking about here with this sort of um, this wide open definition or, or question about what abuse actually is, and the problem the problem with um, subjective uh, nebulous words like like abuse or nebulous um, concepts like this are they're wide open to being um, leveraged for political purposes, leveraged for um, 
or uh, one theological camp or doctrinal camp to try to attack the other. And I would argue that many who are leveraging the concept of abuse or the term abuse, um, or they're just fine with it being wide open and undefined, are actually those who mean to tear down the church generally. And we don't want to, I think I said this on the last protest here tonight, we don't want to we don't want to find ourselves allied with those that want to destroy the church in our um, in our efforts to expose false doctrine and emphasize true doctrine. There will be those, and 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 the problem is that we will find um, commonalities from time to time. We'll find ourselves running alongside them around the track. So as we're trying to work through Scripture and and exercise discernment and do polemics work and things the things that uh, really that protestia exists for. Um, as we're doing that and exposing false doctrine, there are going to be false teachers that we expose or, or that we talk about and we say, hey, they're teaching false doctrine. They're preaching something false. They believe they're, they're, they're pushing this on people. And those who are you know atheists or, I mean, just anti-Christian generally or even call themselves Christian, but they're very clearly... Um, they very clearly have a desire to tear down the tear down the institutional church, the church instituted in the New Testament. Um, they will also those people will also take issue with the false teachers that we're exposing from time to time. So, in this case, I might say, "Hey, we you know Matt Chandler isn't disqualified because of you know because of these messages. He might be. I don't know what they are, um, but he's disqualified because he's been preaching woke nonsense for years now." He's disqualified from the pastorate because he can't seem to correctly interpret or um, or preach what the Bible actually teaches about racial reconciliation or or the lack thereof. He, he doesn't use the biblical framework for how we're to relate to each other as um, members of the the human race who happen to be different ethnicities. He adopts the world's framework for that rather than the biblical framework. That's disqualifying. Who cares about these messages? He should have been disqualified a while ago. Like, you know, we would say that. We would make this case. And now you you have people that want to tear down the church and male leadership in the church and these kinds of things who would be, we would turn to our left or our right and we would see them, well, probably turn to our left, but we would, we would look to our left and we would see them running around the track with us saying, yeah, I also think Matt Chandler's a bad guy. But their motivations are very different. You know, we have to exercise. We we have to exercise discernment, even with those who seem to have common cause with us um, from time to time. This became an issue for for me when I was working through some of the some of the uh, the Julie Roy's nonsense with John MacArthur, and I found myself uh, in common cause with um, we call them sur- the survivor gal. Uh, uh, or survivor blog uh, gals, or I mean, there's there's a nickname for them that we, it's, it's supposed to be tongue in cheek, but basically these these women and authors and bloggers and things that that's their focus. Their focus is their their um, uh, their proclaimed focus, or what they're saying that their focus is is su- supporting abuse survivors and rooting out abuse in the church and and all these kind of things. And um, I would argue that in a lot of cases, like, are there cases of that, that should be exposed and sin going on in the church that would, you know, qualify as abuse um, in in the modern parlance? In other words, are there are there sins going on in the church that are of a um, relational or sexual or um, 
you know, manipulative kind of nature that we would say these are abusive things. Sure, absolutely. And do those things need to be exposed? Yes. Every every um, sin needs to be brought in the light, and the church is to keep itself pure. Um, but in their zeal to do this, and backed by uh, what is almost exclusively egalitarian, you know, doctrine, this idea that what the Bible teaches about gender roles and male leadership is to be not believed. You know, of course, then we would ask, okay, so why do you believe this part of the Bible and not this part of the Bible? Why do you accept this as true and and actionable and something you should follow, but not this part? Um, this is the doctrine that they have that underpinning, um, underpinning their their support for uh, abuse survivors or their advocacy for this or their desire to root these things out of the church. They pin it on biblical teaching. They say. Because there's sin among sinners, because there's sin among sinners, um, this is evidence that uh, we need to throw the whole thing out. I see sin over here by this male pastor over here, and rather than put point the finger at that man and say he's sinning, maybe he's unregenerate, maybe we should look at what he's teaching to see if there's a commonality be- behind his sinful behavior and his doctrine, rather than that, it's he he must be sinning because he's a man in leadership or because there aren't women in leadership in the church to somehow um stop him from doing this or or act as a an alternate uh, voice or whatever it is so the the responsibility is not placed on the individual sinner the responsibility is placed on the collective and i titled the first podcast you know something along the lines of the Marxism, the collectivism that's part of church too. And this is exactly what I'm talking about. There is no, there is no individual responsibility because individual responsibility would not be useful in implicating the whole system, which is what they're trying to do. What they're trying to do is not to place, they're not trying to place the blame on one guy or one person that sinned and say this, this person here sinned, they did something wrong. And yeah, perhaps, Perhaps uh, we we could institute some things um, in the church or some institutional changes that would make this less likely to happen. But at the end of the day, the sin falls on the sinner, and God will judge the sinner, not not the group. Um, they don't do that. Instead, they say this this is evidence that the there are sy- systemic um, problems in here and the the systemic problems are with what the bible teaches about the church what what the new testament reveals about how the church should be run um and you know church you know evangelical churches baptist churches uh uh you know more conservative theological churches are simply trying to go to scripture and take the words at face value and live those out and run the church um, in in a way that's consistent with the New Testament, and so they these you know abuse survivor advocates that are really um, have egalitarianism and um, taking down the church as it as it is constituted in Scripture as their goal. Um, they never want to have the actual conversation about the doctrine. They don't want to actually dig into you know like they'll tell you if you really pressure them enough they'll they'll admit you know Julie Roy's will admit that she's cool with women preaching and she's not the conservative she's claimed to be yeah she'll admit that kinda if you if if she's pressured enough but that's not the focus the you know they don't want to focus on that because that's going to become a red flag to orthodox conservative Christians you know what they're trying to do is to get you to 
to unquestioningly support their their um, their stated cause. They're trying to get you to unquestioningly support supporting um, abuse survivors and all of this, and that's that's a very uh, easy bandwagon to jump on emotionally. We all want to support. I mean, if someone's been sinned against, if they've been harmed, if they've been hurt in a way that's sinful, whatever that is, that's wrong. We want to we want to correct that unrighteousness as as much as possible. We want to, we want to advocate for them um, and support them any way we can. That's that's all true. But their goal is to get um, huge swaths of people to to um, ally with them on that on that uh, goal, and then it's a bait and switch. At that point, they will say, once you're totally on board and you're unquestioningly supporting anybody that uh, is an abuse survivor in any context, um, whether it's whether it's really a sin or not, the whole swath of th- of things that people would consider abuse. Once you're on board with that, and and you're you're committed in an emotional way to being an ally of theirs no matter what's going on at that point then they reveal the true cause behind it which of course you weren't focused on but the true cause behind it which is the patriarchal church the fact that the church is um restricts the office of elder uh to men restricts the office of deacon to men and yeah, we can get into a conversation about what it means to be a, a, a female deacon. Fine, it's not. I'm not here for that right now. But the the idea that men are leaders in the church as a reflection of them being leaders in the marriage and the home, and being the head of the wife, that's what they're really going after. That's what they're really going after. And the advocacy for abuse, while a a good thing in and of itself is largely a smokescreen for the doctrinal shift that they want to bring about. And fortunately for them, fortunately for this little gambit, this bait and switch that they're trying to pull on all of us, there are actual cases of abuse that are out there and actual instances of um, Christian ministers sinning and abusing their positions of authority and doing things they ought not to do. Um, that's always going to be the case unfortunately we live in a sinful world the church is populated by sinners and the fact that that's the case they they paint this idea that well if we if we get rid of patriarchal leadership if we if we get rid of male headship in the home and in the church that somehow these sins will go away and um they won't go away because sin is sin sinful nature is sinful nature um in churches where there are women in leadership instead, if we can even call them churches, most of these places where women are in leadership instead, it's not all of a sudden now there's no sin in leadership. Yeah. Like, is it as easy for them to take advantage of people or, or perhaps abuse their positions of power? Maybe not, but they abuse the pulpit every time they step up and preach you know, these, these female preachers that are not only acting in direct disobedience to the word of God by preaching to the gathered assembly, but they are the things that actually come from the sermon are largely um, unorthodox um, twistings of scripture and um, you know heresy in many cases and, and really bad things that come come from these pulpits and that's not a coincidence. Um, as soon as somebody lets go of biblical fidelity in one area, it's just a matter of time before they're letting it go elsewhere. I have yet to see. If you find one of these, I mean, send it to me. But I have yet to see a woman pastor preach a preach a sermon that is entirely biblically faithful. 
um, that's just just you know scriptural uh, um, exegesis from top to bottom. I've yet to see it happen. I've yet to see um, a a a uh, woman who writes Bible studies and is comfortable preaching in front of men and women who has a solid Bible study. It's usually a bunch of emotional gobbledygook. And I say that only to to say that there's a commonality. There's a commonality between what is taught doctrinally and um, how one behaves. Um, I know we're getting kind of close to the end of this episode, and I, I've I've been teasing about the discussion of this idea, I guess I'm going to have to push it in episode three. I hope this episode has been helpful to you for sure. Um, but the topic that I really wanted to get to, it was to dig into, um, how wives can actually abuse their husbands and how this is such a much more pervasive problem. Um, it, it seems only, um, only fair if we're going to discuss abuse generally, or if that's going to be, uh, an issue within the popular conversation that we look to see how it can work out the other way. Uh, it wouldn't take us too long. I mean, we wouldn't have to go back too far in time to find times where, where it would be difficult, if not impossible, for wives to actually abuse their husbands. Uh, if we got back past, gone, you know, in the past, back past uh, <laughs> um, the industrial age, and and whatnot, and back into uh, when when society was very agricultural and things, uh, you wouldn't find a lot of wife abuse of of husbands um, because she she really needed him on a on a physical level as a caretaker, and so um, husbands might not be the the men that they were supposed to be. Uh, wives really didn't have a lot of choice, a lot of places to go elsewhere. And of course, being physically uh, weaker and whatnot, that w- it would have been very difficult for a wife to abuse her husband. And yet, modern modern society, modern um, uh, societal egalitarianism and, and whatnot, has it has brought us a lot of good things in terms of um, you know uh, women's suffrage. We could have that argument, though. I mean, that that certainly would be worthy of a discussion, perhaps. But while we would argue that, I would argue that modern society has brought some good things in terms of um, giving women more options in the workplace and and really, you know, seeing seeing us all as equals in terms of you know our value and our contribution to society, which which we are. It's also um, opened the door um, and given 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 sinful women the ability to sin in ways that only really sinful men probably had the capacity to do prior to that. And so in that context, uh, we have to understand that it is a very real issue that wives can abuse their husbands. They can spiritually and emotionally abuse their husbands. It can go the other way, despite what um, the abuse uh, survivor advocates would have us believe as they try to tear down the patriarchy or try to tear down male leadership um, in the home and in, in institutions. They can't, as soon as they open the door and admit, yeah, that can actually go the other way, now all of a sudden that ruins their narrative and it does damage to what they're really trying to do, which is um, to tear down uh, the idea that male leadership is actually a design of the Lord, that male headship, the the, uh, husband being the head of the wife, was actually designed by God. Um, they're trying to tear that down. And so they don't want to admit that there, that there may be a much more pervasive issue with um, wives and women abusing their husbands, abusing men, 
than there actually is. So we're, we're going to talk about that in episode three. Thank you so much for joining me for this second episode of the Bully Pew podcast. Um, check out protestia.com for headlines. And you can also watch uh, this program uh, airs on Protestia's uh, live you know, Protestia Live, which is uh, on the Protestia YouTube channel as well. Uh, anyway, uh, reach out to me with questions. You know where to find me. This is David Morrill for Protestia and the Bully Pew Podcast. Uh, have a good day.